This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it this morning. Turn with me to James chapter 4. We are taking a little break from the Gospel of John. We, Lord willing, will pick it up in chapter 5 in the middle of February. We're looking at James 4 this morning, which is not really a departure from where we were in John. It really is an opportunity that we have to dig a little deeper into one of John's primary themes. Something that I believe we would understand well as we walk through the Gospel of John. And Lord willing, when we finish the book of John, we'll have a better understanding. I wanted to stop here for a few weeks at the beginning of the year and talk about this idea of life. Life in Jesus. John 20, 31, John says that he has written these things, the whole book of John, that we might believe. And in believing, might have life in his name. Meaning that the only way into life is starting with a a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no life outside of Jesus. There is physical life, but there is no real life. There's no spiritual life. There's no fullness. There's no awareness of his goodness. There is no real life outside of Jesus. So just know that, that if you don't have Jesus, you really can't experience real life because it is when we see Jesus as the payment for our sins and call upon the Lord to save us from our sins and surrender our lives to him, it is then that the Spirit creates life in us and we come to life. We can have physical life, but not spiritual life without Jesus. And then in John 10.10, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. And so that's even next level that he not only came to give us life, but he wants us to experience some full and abundant overflowing life. Which I would say we want, but often feels elusive to us. We're not sure exactly how we go into that life and receive it. And so we answered that question last week. If you weren't here last week, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that. How is it that God leads us into that abundant life? And the answer is by his spirit. It is the spirit that gives us life. John 7 says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. So we saw last week that it is the Spirit of God that creates life. We have no life without a sovereign work of the Spirit, John 3. It is the the Spirit that sustains life. And so the way we moment by moment experience it is the Spirit. It is the Spirit that increases life. And it is the Spirit that manifests life. And so God's desire is that by the work of the Spirit, we would come to spiritual life. And as we walk close to Him, we would consistently be filled with the Spirit and increasing in life and more manifesting the life of Jesus to those around us. We gave you a little picture last week to kind of clarify that. It's here on the little thing that you brought in or that you received when you came in, and it's also here on the screen. This is the best way I know to communicate the Christian life. Those rivers at the top are rivers of living water flowing from the Lord. So that is the Spirit of God. That's John 7. It has been flowing into our heart, filling every need and desire and longing of our heart. And then the green represents the health of our heart. Then we are Psalm 1 type of people who are bearing fruit and our fruit is increasing. and Our leaf does not wither. We want to be those kind of people. And the reason this matters is for two reasons. 
that when I am seeking to be filled with the Spirit of God, not only is my heart satisfied, which is a really good motivation for walking close with Jesus. Like, I just want life. <laughs> I, I, I know what it's like to live life without Jesus, and it's better with Jesus, and I want life. And so part of our motive for fighting sin and walking with Jesus is just, I want a healthy heart. Like, I, I, want, I want the green. I want the flourishing. And I want to know what that's like internally. But the other motivation is that I want that life to kind of emanate from me. And so you see that little kind of blue hue there around the heart reflects on what happens when a person is filled with the Spirit of God. Well, then the Spirit's life comes through, and then other people are blessed by the fruit of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit that's coming from you. So I said this to you last week, if you were to say to me, what, what's your best advice on marriage or parenting? I would say that, that picture, that greatest chance that we have of raising kids that love Jesus and having a marriage that honors the Lord is that we be filled with the Spirit, that we take care of our own heart, and that we're filled with the Spirit of God. And, and then the fruit of the Spirit is then coming out of our life and blessing those around us. I don't know of anything more important than that. And if you want to bless those in your dorm or in your classroom or in the workplace or in your home, well, that just starts with a healthy heart filled with the Spirit of God. And so that's where the life comes from. But we're sinful people, and we're in a sinful world, and those rivers don't flow as freely as we would want them to. And so that's where we have this second picture, that there are in our life hindrances to the presence of God and his spirit in us. And so where the ideal life, the abundant life, is this kind of unhindered flow of God's spirit in us, bringing us to life and emanating from us, that's the goal. But the reality is this. That it's somewhere in between that there are some big things and some little things, some seen things, some unseen things. Everything from a massive stone to sediment in the water that's hindering just the flow of God's spirit. And then the result is this. Then our hearts are not flourishing. We're not flourishing internally. And so it's less green than it was in the first picture. There's even parts of our life that seem to be dying and we're just not experiencing life in Jesus and then there's, there's nothing coming out of us that's the life of the Spirit. And so if that's me, if my life is just filled with hindrances, unconfessed sin, and all of those things that might hinder us, well, then the result is the only thing my family is getting is my flesh, not the Spirit. And they don't need that. And the only thing you're getting from me is my flesh and not the Spirit. And everyone around you is just getting more of your flesh. And that doesn't bless them. They need the Spirit. And how do they get the Spirit? Because you're a temple of the Spirit of God. And so God has made your heart the place in which his spirit resides. And so we want to, for the sake of our own heart, both of those motives, and for the sake of others around us, to make sure those rivers are flowing freely. Seeking the spirit of God. And we talked last week about how to seek the spirit of God and be filled with the spirit of God. But over the next few weeks, we want to talk about what are those things that hinder God's presence. Because all of us have one. What hinders the life of God? And there are four that we have identified that we believe are the most prevalent in our church and in the culture and time in which we live. They are worldliness, pride, apathy, and unconfessed sin. Worldliness, pride, apathy, spiritual apathy, and unconfessed sin. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at those. It sounds like so much fun. It's hard. I'm just going to even tell you this morning, the one we're talking about this morning, it's hard. And, it, and it, it takes thought and care. These things are not simple. 
but we're motivated to do the hard work and to be thoughtful Christians because we want life. We just want abundant life. He promised it. It's available. We want it. And so we pursue not condemnation, but right and good conviction. And we welcome it in our heart. Lord, expose to me the hindrances. Why? Because we want his life in us and we want his life through us. And this morning we start with, with worldliness. Worldliness. Now the reason I find this to be such a difficult one to talk about is because when I say worldliness, it does a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So for one generation, maybe those my age and a little bit older, when you think about the idea of worldliness, a lot of things come to your mind. And you may even have a physical, emotional reaction to this idea of worldliness. You heard about this growing up, and for you, it tends to mean a bunch of things that you should not do. Kind of some rules and, and regulations, some very clear worldly activities that you must avoid. So things like dancing and drinking and playing cards and movies and, and music. This is why everyone in my generation at least once at camp came home and burned all of their tapes and CDs, right? Because it's worldly. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, what's sad about all the online music now is they can't burn anything like we did. So we burned all kinds of stuff. I remember growing up, there was very clearly a worldly way to wear your hair, even as a guy. Not much of a problem for me anymore. I'm just playing it right down the middle. But there was very clearly growing up worldly ways to, to wear your hair. You could have a haircut that made you look worldly. And so there tended to be this idea of worldliness that was a lot of legalistic rules and regulations, a lot of things that you should not do. And I think... Although the motive was right, I think the motive was we, we want to be holy, what it tended to create is just more Pharisees, which we don't need. What I mean by that is it tended to create a generation of people that defined righteousness by externals and not internals. What we realized is this. You can not listen to the bad music or go to the bad movies. You can cut your hair exactly the way that you're supposed to and still die and go to hell. That's what we learned. Because the externals don't make us right and the externals don't rid us of the worldliness. You can do all of those things and still have a really worldly heart. And so for some of you, that's what immediately comes up in that kind of legalistic rules. For others of you, when I say worldliness, you think of literally nothing nothing and the reason is probably because my generation heard so much about worldliness that when we started to preach we never talked about worldliness because we were afraid of being legalistic and now no one knows what worldliness is so we don't even think about it at all like for some of you i could say and i'm looking more over in this direction so you i could say you haven't thought anything about worldliness this is just not a thought or a thing there's another group of people i think there are some when you hear worldliness, you, you cringe a little bit because you remember that legalism and you hate that legalism and you feel like you've kind of gotten freed from that legalism and you don't want anything to do with that. But my concern would be if legalism is over here, rules and regulations, and you can be right with God if you do all the right things, over here is a big word called antinomianism, which is a word that means anti-law. And it is a heresy, antinomianism is a heresy, which basically says that now that I'm under grace and have freedom in Christ, the moral law of God doesn't matter to me anymore. There is no 
I'm not bound anymore to God's moral law. And so then it doesn't matter what I listen to or what I watch or, or what I do because I'm not bound by the law. And so where one generation over here might have been way too hard on definitely a list of all the things you can't do, there's another generation over here that's so terrified of being legalistic that they don't care about the moral law of God and they're not even trying anymore. Well, there's a lot of problems in all of that. And the biggest problem is, is that worldliness is probably the greatest and most subtle hindrance to us experiencing the life of the Spirit in this generation. There may be nothing that hinders us more in a subtle way than worldliness because it does hinder the spirit of God. And, and James is writing because he feels the, the weight of worldliness and how thoughtless we are about it. Look at what he says, starting in James 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Boy, that, that's interesting, isn't it? Would you like to have an answer to that? What causes fights and quarrels? What's the, what's the cause of fights and quarrels in the home, in the church, in the workplace? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, Lord willing, we'll continue in this passage next week, but we're going to start at verse 5 this morning. Now, I want you to know that everything in that text I just read revolves around one phrase, everything. It is the phrase that's used twice in verse four. Do you see it there? Friendship with the world. He repeats it again. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldliness is friendship with the world. That's what worldliness is. Worldliness is friendship with the world. And so in order to understand what worldliness is, we have to understand what that little phrase means. Well, first of all, let's think about that word friendship. Friendship is sometimes translated as friend in the New Testament. It's also translated love oftentimes in the New Testament because it's, it's one of the Greek words that we have for love. We know eros to be romantic love. It is the type of love that the Greeks were scared of in a sense because it was wild and unruly. It is that romantic love. But this is phileo, it is a brotherly love. And apart from the romantic aspect of it and the physical aspect of it, it's really not far removed from eros love. It has the same depth of affection and commitment and deep concern. It was a word often used to refer to men who went to battle together. They went into the battle with maybe some of this love, but they came out with a greater depth of this brotherly affection. They were committed to one another. They would give anything for one another because of that common battle they'd been through. You see, in Hellenistic world, they took friendship much more seriously than we would. We just kind of throw around the word friend, but for them, it meant something significant. And so if you just kind of go through the New Testament and look at the way it's used, it helps us to understand it. Matthew eleven eight it says Jesus is a friend of sinners. What does that mean? It means he loves them. 
It means where the religious world in which Jesus came into hated them and made this category righteous, unrighteous, sinner, unsinner. Jesus, on the other hand, came and loved sinners. He spent time with them. He defended them. He was affectionate toward them. He had deep concern for them. He's a friend of sinners. He tells us in John 3, 29, it's the kind of love that, and we looked at this a few months ago, it's the kind of love a, a groom would have for his best man. He's my guy. I'm committed to him. We've been through a lot together. In John 11, we see in John eleven eleven that Jesus wept when he looked at Lazarus as he was dead. And part of that is because Jesus felt the weight of sin and the consequences of sin and he grieved over death. But it was more than that because it tells us earlier in John 11 that this was Jesus's friend. Jesus wept because he loved Lazarus. He wept because he had affection for him. He was concerned for him. It, his heart broke. They had this brotherly affection. And so he was brokenhearted that Lazarus was dead. John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that he give his life for his friend. He gives his life for his friend. And so this type of friendship is one that sacrifices everything for the other. It also says in John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing, but I'm letting you in on all that I'm doing and what the father is doing. So what Jesus says is, I don't want just a master-servant relationship with you. And I don't even want just a father-son relationship with you. Jesus says, I want friendship with you. I want us to know each other and to walk together and, and to encourage one another. And so when you take all of those uses of this word, you come to understand that, that really what he means by friendship is, is loving affection, deep concern, and sacrificial commitment. Get that down. It is loving affection. It's a matter for the heart. You have affections for someone. It is deep concern, which means you think about them. And it is sacrificial commitment, meaning you would sacrifice anything for this person. It is affection, concern, and commitment. It's a matter of the heart, the mind, and the will. So that's what he means by friendship. Affection, concern, commitment. But what does he mean by the world? Well, in one sense, when the Bible talks about the world, it talks about this entire worldly system that is opposed to God. There is a Christian worldview, a way to view the world in terms of Christ and his word. And there is an unchristian worldview, which means we see the world and everything in it without the lens of Christ. And so one of the things that is often meant by the world is just this whole pagan life that, that is not thought about in terms of the life of Christ. It's opposed to God. It's values and ethics and morals and desires that are opposed to God. And so we could talk a lot about that, about what it means to have a Christian worldview. And that really influences a lot of what we do here on Wednesday nights and, and a lot of our curriculum for students and children and college students. But the truth is, there are many of you who know Christ that don't view things from a Christian worldview. When it comes to issues of morality, your view on marriage or sex or culture, or politics, or abortion. You just kind of have these views. And if you were to say them and evaluate them, you would realize they're godless. There's no God in your view of politics, or culture, or sex, or marriage, or abortion. or They're just godless. Well, that's a big deal. And we need to confront those things. We need to teach how to, how to think in a, in a Christian way, to view every area of life with a Christian worldview but I don't think that's what James is talking about specifically here. It is a part of it. But James is talking about something more subtle, and I would even say maybe more dangerous than that because of how subtle it is. 
It's not just talking about this, this view of the world. He's talking more because he says friendship with the world with affections and concerns and commitments to earthly things. Listen, things that may be in and of themselves not sinful. But things that become sinful when our affections and our concern and our commitment is controlled by them. See, one of the things that makes this sermon difficult, and you'll see this as we get to the end, is there's just a lot of things we have to do in life. We have to work, and we go to work, and we do laundry, and we take care of children, and we just we go to school. We just do all the things we have to do. What happens is oftentimes those things and all the other things in our life crowd out God. So there's no God left in our life, practically speaking. We give a nod to him here and there, but there's real no affection and concern and commitment. And then if you were to evaluate your life, what you would come to realize is what really controls the condition of your heart, whether you're happy or not, is not God. It's a bunch of other stuff. And if you were to think about what are you, what are you really concerned with all of the time? What takes up your mind and your attention? Well, it would not be God. It would be all these things. Listen to this. What do you sacrifice for? Do you sacrifice for Christ in his kingdom, in your money and in your time, or are all of your sacrifices giving to something that's not the kingdom? You see, all of us sacrifice for something, but worldliness is when we make a ton of sacrifices, none of them for, the, for Christ in his kingdom or for the church. Jerry Bridges defines worldliness this way, and I like this. He says, being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with things of this temporal life. Those things are necessary for life, but to be engrossed in them and attached to them and preoccupied with them. By attached, it means if I lose them, I lose my sense of value and all my emotions are gone when I lose these things or preoccupied with them. Here's the way I would define worldliness. Here's where I define worldliness. Worldliness is an idolatrous preoccupation with earthly things. That's my definition. An idolatrous preoccupation with earthly things. By preoccupation, what I mean is it's what controls your mind and thoughts and affections. It's a preoccupation. I'm just, I'm preoccupied with this. It's always in my mind. Idolatrous means that when you're so preoccupied with earthly things and you have crowded out heavenly things, then your God is now the things you're preoccupied with. And that's idolatry. And so this is why I said this is such a subtle thing, because it could be that we just think we have a problem that we never think about God and we don't really care much about the things of the Lord, like in practical terms. And we don't think it's that big of a deal, but what it is, it's idolatry because then God's not our God. All these things that we're preoccupied with are our God. It is an idolatrous preoccupation with the things of the world. And that makes sense of Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Well, what other things? Well, the things he just talked about, what he just talked about is what you eat, what you drink, and what you wear. So what he's saying is this, you have to think about what you eat and what you drink and what you wear. Like those things have to be in your mind. But when those things are first, when clothes are, are first and how you appear is first and things of the fleshly body are first, our passions, our desires are first, then we can't seek first the kingdom of God. And you can't seek first those things and the kingdom at the same time. So Jesus says, if you'll seek first the kingdom, I'll make sure you have all those other things. Those things will be fine. And the reality is the more we seek the kingdom, the less those things will matter to us. That's why 1 John 2.15, it says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Well, what it's saying is don't be preoccupied with them. Make sure your heart, your mind, and affections are not controlled by those things, but by Christ. Maybe one of the most important verses in this 
aspect is Colossians 3.2, which says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of earth. Which I think immediately we would say, well, I have to think about the things of earth. You do. But setting your mind there means to be focused on something, to concentrate on something, to be mindfully devoted, mindfully devoted to something. So the difference is we have to think about earthly things, but where's the most of your affection? What are the things, if taken away, would, would crush your emotions? Where's your mind most of the time? Where are your desires and pursuits? Where are your sacrifices most of the time? And that's what he says, that your mind should be centered on things that matter most. And the reason that Jesus is so concerned about this, because he knows how empty the things of the earth are and how temporal they are. And if the only thing we're thinking about is earthly things, then we're missing the greater heavenly things. Worldliness, according to Romans 1.25, is really loving created things more than the creator. You say, well, I don't do that. I don't love created things more than the creator. Well, how do we define love? Do you have affections for the things of God? Do you make sacrifices for the things of God? Are you thinking often about the things of God? Maybe the question is, do we really know what we love? I mean, we say we love God, but in reality, are we loving the world more than we're loving God because that's what preoccupied with? I fear that we're just thinking very little about Christ and his kingdom and eternal things. We're so preoccupied with all the earthly things that matter, but they're not to be God. When I was growing up, we used to hear this phrase a lot that a person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You ever heard that? We used to use that to refer to people who did a lot of Bible studies and then didn't share their faith. Kind of this idea, like there are just so many Bible studies and so much thinking about the Lord that they're really useless in the world. And I heard that phrase a lot growing up. And I read something recently by John Piper. He said this, referring to that phrase, listen carefully. He said, yes, I know it's possible to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. My problem is I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that their mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that their mind is empty and their mouth is just full of platitudes. I mean, it's not that they're just completely heavenly minded. They just like to speak in that way to make you think they are. He says this, I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, heavenly thoughts, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. Our problem is not that we're thinking too much about the kingdom. We're not too heavenly minded. The problem is we're not very heavenly minded at all. If we just value what, what owns our heart and our affections and what owns our mind and our will, the reality is most of the things that are not conformed into the image of, of Christ, they're just controlled by the world. And James feels the heaviness of this and he wants us to know how heavy it is and how serious it is. And so he defines it for us in a, in a couple of different ways here. I just want to give you these quickly. I would encourage you to write this down. James wants us to understand the seriousness of this, that worldliness is really about internal hostility. Get that down. Worldliness is internal hostility. I, I, love, I love this picture. Uh, we spent a lot of time... Um, Spencer right here and, and trying to think through how to do this and and I love it It's just you know, it's so beautiful with the blue and 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 the water And I think you can just close your eyes and you can hear the bubbling brook of the life of the spirit flowing in you, you know? 
That's those platitudes we were talking about. Like just all of it, it's just, it's so peaceful, but there's only one deficiency and I don't know how to fix it, but the deficiency is this is actually war. This is war. And so we could put some, some army people and we could put some grenades and some explosions. It would just mess up the whole thing. But the reality is it's much less kind of just this peaceful receiving of the water. And this is an all-out war for your soul. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why is there so much strife in my life? What causes all these fights and quarrels? And he's most likely talking about the church or probably the home as well. James hearing what is going on there and confronts it. He says, I'll tell you what it is. It's your passions which are waging a war within you. It's your desires and your passions. He says again in verse 3, what's happening is this. There's a war going on inside of you and you don't know there's a war so you're not fighting the war. The result is this. You have these things you want so bad but you're not getting them. You have unmet desires and unfulfilled expectations and hopes and dreams. There's all these passions, most of them not conformed to Christ. They're just these driving passions that you want and things that you long for and things that you expect. And when you don't get them, the result is quarrels and fights among you. <laughs> and so often we think that the problem is, well, that person I'm fighting with, that's the problem when in the reality the problem always starts in here. I hate that that's the truth, but it's the truth. And so the fight of all of our dissension is almost always our unmet desires, expectations, passions, things that we think we need that are ungodly. And so what's happening is this. There's this worldliness in our heart, which is here's all the things I need and want and expect and deserve and when I walk around feeling that way, the result is it just causes a lot of conflict. And what I don't realize, the reason those things are there is because there's a war going on inside of me. And it's a war for the, my soul and it's a war of worldliness. This is why 1 Peter 2.11 says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which are waging war against your soul. When we think of fleshly lust, we often think about sexual issues, but fleshly lust is just the desire for things and, and clothes and stuff and prominence and house, like all the stuff. It's just fleshly desires, worldly desires. Those desires are waging a war for our soul. They want to own us. And they will subtly will own us if we don't constantly fight back by centering ourselves on the things of the Lord. It's not that it's wrong to have things. It's just wrong for things to own us. And to control us. And to be what we want the most. And to be unwilling to sacrifice those things for the things of the Lord. This is a war that is happening within us. I, I was thinking in the, in the second service this morning that if the devil just decided to leave me alone, like Josh Smith, like the devil just thought, I'm going to leave Josh alone. We said, devil, why are you going to leave Josh alone? Because I have discovered that Josh has enough just junk and sin in him to keep him preoccupied and defeated the rest of his life without me doing anything. Like, I think that's a, that could be a real thing. There's just enough junk in here already that I don't even need the constant temptation of the devil. I've just got so many desires and passions that aren't conformed to the image of Christ and the word of God that that keeps me busy. But we've got both. We have the enemy and we have these lusts, these things we desire and want that are waging war and we don't see it as a war, but it's a war. And so he says worldliness is about this internal hostility. And if there's no part of your life that's fighting that, then you're losing that battle. We'll talk about that when we talk about apathy. Second, he says worldliness is about spiritual adultery. 
Look at the strength of that statement in verse 4. You adulterous people. (laughs) That's strong. You're adulterous. What does he mean by that? What he means is that you've left your covenant relationship, your love and commitment to Christ. And although you know you've made that commitment, your real commitment is to everything else but Christ. I've done a lot of weddings over the last 20 or so years. And from time to time, one thing that will happen is a couple will say they want to write their own vows, which is great. The only thing about it, oftentimes a little scary for the guy preaching the wedding because you have no idea what they're going to say until the moment. Sometimes they're incredible. Sometimes they're super cheesy. Sometimes you're like, I've heard that somewhere before. I think you ripped that off from a song. Sometimes I just think, I have four daughters. I've seen a lot of Hallmark movies. You did not come up with that. I saw that. I heard that before. So there's a lot of weird things that happen, but... I was just thinking about what, what it would be like if I was there doing a wedding, you were present, and, and they decided to give their vows to each other, and the, the bride goes, and it's just incredible. She just, uh, I, I love you, and you're everything I've ever dreamed of and, and wanted, and um, all the stuff that is said at my house all the time, just, just um, everything I've ever wanted and dreamed of, and I just can't imagine anything any better, and I give myself completely to you in, in every way all the time, and I just, this is it. This is all I've ever wanted, and it was just, oh, man, it's unbelievable. We're crying, and the guy goes and he goes, honey, I, I agree. There's nobody I would rather be with here than you. You are all of my dreams fulfilled and I love you so much. And I just want you to know right here in front of God and, and all these witnesses that I'm completely committing myself to you Monday through Friday. <laughs> that I, I am fully committed to you partially. <laughs> I don't even know, what would you do? I don't know what I'd do. You say, what's the guy doing on Saturday and Sunday? Like how, you can't. Like, you can't be fully committed to someone partially. But that's really worldliness. Worldliness is, I've committed to, lo- I want to love God. Like, I want to love God. And I, I'm coming into a covenant relationship with God. And, and, and I know that God has life. And there's nothing better than Jesus. And I'm giving you that. But the reality is the spiritual adultery comes in when in reality, I don't love God that much. And I don't think about God that much. And, and, and my affections aren't stirred up by God that much. And so although I said I've made this commitment, the reality of my life is not that the Lord is the center of life. That's spiritual adultery. So James just wants us to understand, when we're just casual about the things of God, that's actually spiritual adultery. We're unfaithful to the one that we've made a commitment to. But the last thing I want you to see is this. It's internal hostility. It's spiritual adultery, but it's also about divine jealousy. So what I was thinking is, if, if my picture here is right, Okay, where everything, this is the picture of the Christian life. What I had to ask myself is this. Well, okay, well, how does worldliness fit in with this picture? Okay. And then the text answers it. (laughs) How does this fit with the life of the spirit? Well, look at what he says in verse five. Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I love that. It's a really good translation of a very complicated phrase. What it means is this. I think it's two parts. It means, first of all, God yearns jealously for you and for all of you. He doesn't want a part of you. He wants all of you. He's yearning for everything inside of you, for your whole heart. He wants not a part. He wants all, and he wants every area of your heart to flourish. That's the Ephesians 3 we read before I preached. God wants to dwell in your heart by faith. In every area of your life, he wants to dwell and take up residence. He's jealous for all of you. But I think it means more than that. He jealously yearns for the spirit he has made to dwell in you. I think that's a reverence to the Holy Spirit as well. 
Christ died so that the Holy Spirit might be in you and that you might experience the life of Jesus. So listen, you say, well, why is God so concerned about this? Like, like this does feel legalistic, all the things I can and can't do. No, it's not about that. This is a heart of a father who's looking at his children and he's looking at them giving up incredible things for worthless things. And he just loves us and he's jealous for us and he wants us deeply. Like he just longs for us to experience the fullness of everything he has and he knows what he's got for us and he knows the emptiness of a life without God and he knows that he has sent his son Jesus Christ that you might have abundant life and so he just jealously longs that you would experience everything God has for you and so his motive is just love. He just loves you and he so desperately wants you to receive everything that he has and he knows that unless we deal with those hindrances, the the worldliness that will be blocking the flow of the life he died to give us, that resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Here's what's so difficult, I think, about this message. There's a lot of difficulties. I think the difficulties of the extremes. But I think the greater difficulty is these are just complicated things and they're hard things to think about. They're not simple. I think, I will say this, I think preachers tend to love simplicity. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's so easy. I think people like it too, because if they can just do the right things and not do the bad things, they're good. The problem is life's just not that simple. Life's complicated. And so what I want to lead you into is being a thoughtful Christian that thinks deeply about the things of the Lord and ask hard questions. And so that's the reason we gave you this. A few of you had already read it before we started and tried to give it back to me. These are really complicated things. These are really hard questions. There's 15 questions to discern and wage war on worldliness. And what I want you to do, I'm going to give you some time here to do this. I'm going to give you seven or eight minutes just to do this during our prayer time. I don't want you just to read them. Listen, listen to me carefully. Don't look at them yet. Look at me. Don't look at them yet. I don't want you just to read them. I want you to pray through them. Does the focus of your finances reflect love for personal comfort more than the kingdom of God? It's not saying that, that comfort is not is bad. It's just that what's more? Are your ambitions in your life to promote yourself more than to promote Jesus? Are your emotions stirred? Listen to this. What fires you up? Are your emotions stirred when talking about cultural, political, and social issues more than Jesus? So you get super fired up when we talk about certain things, but nothing about Jesus. That's a problem. Are your desires for your children primarily focused on material wealth, achievement, personal comfort, or on knowing and following Jesus? There's 15 of those. And so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a minute. I just want you to think about these. If you want to get on your knees and pray, this is our prayer time. So there's just, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Just if you want to sit and look at these, if you want to get your knees and read these, if you want to come forward, we welcome you to do that. But just pray, ask the questions, pray through them, confess sin that you see, ask the Lord to expose you what is really there and heal you of those things because your motive is a healthy heart filled with the life of Jesus. Let me pray and then we'll do this. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.